Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day. Every little thing's gonna be A-okay. known fact about my guest today. She is one of the most prolific and most produced playwrights in America. She is of Middle Eastern and Norwegian descent. She grew up obsessed with Patty Hearst, but has gone on to just write the most incredible plays, often focused on her own Middle Eastern story. I am so thrilled to welcome Mona Mansour to the podcast. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is the award-winning playwright Mona Mansour. Mona's play, The Vagrant Trilogy, is currently in production at the Public Theater in New York City. Some of her other plays include Unseen, Beginning Days of True Jubilation, We Swim, We Talk, We Go to War, and The House of Feeling. She is also a writer and producer on the NBC medical drama New Amsterdam and has many other projects in development. Mona is deeply committed to creating roles for Middle Eastern artists. She lives in New York, but grew up in California. It is my honor to welcome Mona to the podcast today. Yay! Hi! Hi! Hi, Alana. Um, I can't believe uh, just days after I got to see your beautiful, beautiful production of this trilogy, I I I get to talk to you. It's like reading a book and then having the novelist sit in your living room with you because I'm so full of the beautiful performances and the incredibly deep deep production that you and Mark Windavy has have shared with us. And um and I want to talk much about the play, but I first want to just get into who you are. Uh, the artist known as Mona, um, to to kind of get beyond she grew up in California and now totally. in New York. Sort of, um, also, if you look at her resume, it's like the groundlings are in there. Like there's, I mean, this is a very it's serious absolutely. playwright with groundlings on her resume, which I love so much. So, uh, well, yeah. Talk, the, the, talk the, to the, me. The, the swirl, right? The swirly path that leads us to where we go. I mean, it's like, uh, I was a very sort of um, serious young actress. Nobody in my family was in theater whatsoever. 
Um, and I, yes, was living in California and there was in my bedroom, like a poster of New York. And there was like a poster from the public theater, uh, with Meryl Streep. And I think John Cazale in it from measure for measure. It's just funny because like somebody bought that for me, right? Nobody in my family knew what the public theater was. I doubt, frankly, my dad knew who Meryl Streep was or is, but I was easy to buy presents for. Because when you've got a kid who's like into that, so it would be like the chorus line calendar, you know, all this stuff, right? So weirdo, theater person, all the ways that like, you know, the, and then I got involved in this thing called San Diego Junior Theater, which um, I was talking about the other day, like a lot of really fancy people came out of there, like Casey Nicola. Um, I, I remember watching him in a play and just being like dazzled, right? And so, but I... At the same time, so like, so college comes around or whatever, and I got into NYU and I got into SMU in Dallas, Texas. And this was the 80s. And my parents were like, no, you are not going to New York. And frankly, I think New York might have, I was really like, I don't know if I can curse on this show, but I was really fucking like, did not, really naive, right? I, I didn't have any city sense whatsoever. So it's probably a good thing that that didn't happen. But um, yeah, so at that time I wanted to be a serious actress and then uh, I ended up going to SMU, getting that acting training, all the things that, you know, I'm really glad now as a playwright that I got all that training. But at the time it was like, I'm rolling around on the ground and, you know, doing like the, uh, that stuff and it's so expensive and I have student debt and all those things. But I'm really glad that I did do that. And then I think after college, I wanted to be, you know, the next Merrill or the next Sigourney Weaver. I mean, you know, um, and that just wasn't going to happen. And so, and then I always wanted to create. So the Groundlings was sort of an interesting crossroads because I, uh, I think what it got me to do is I just learned how to write. I learned how to write on my feet, which was the way that I was going to first start to write. So I weren't the funniest. And I was in there with people like Anna, who's a good friend, Anna Gasteyer and Will and all these people. But, you know, it's a very competitive place. Um, but it also, the great takeaway was it sort of taught me to not be so precious. I mean, I don't even know necessarily what I mean by precious, but I guess what I partly mean is, you know, you would do this sketch on a Wednesday night and it would get in the show on Sunday. I was in the Sunday company. So you'd go and you'd buy like um, your own costumes and go to Ross dress for less and you'd find a wig or whatever, God knows what. And then, you know, you would do it on that Sunday and things would fail. I mean, you know, you just, the cold sweat of there's only one way to know you're succeeding in a situation like that is that there's laughter at least. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, there were a couple of things where I was like, there was not literally one laugh. And, you know, I remember like looking at a scene partner and, and the guy just like his eyes just got really wide and it just, this is not how we thought it killed on Wednesday. And of course we had bought costumes for it, which, you know, in hindsight, you'd always say that's the kiss of death. Don't spend more than ten dollars. Right, right. You fucking commit and you go down, and but it did teach me that um, that kind of I guess resilience or something. Um, 
But from there, I just wanted to write. And I, and I just, in hindsight, it all signs pointed toward writing. The first thing I wrote, the full, first full-length play, was a solo play that I did do. But when I was acting, I was one of those people where I could only act in the evening if I had like half a cup of caffeine, went to yoga, swam. Like it was like being a monk for me, right? Like I couldn't just be have a free Everything day. Everything else had to stop in your life to do yeah, that. Yeah, right? because I was too sort of just not really regularly in my body. And I just was like, if you're going to do this, you have to treat yourself like, like fine China. Did you ever like love it? Or were you always like, I am a mess? I think I did love it. I mean, okay. I, I will say though, that because it's, it's really interesting, right? And I'm sure you've come across this as a, as a performer, for some people, being on stage is like water. It's like nothing. Right. It's just their home. They're singers like that. And yeah. for some people, it is everything leading up to it and everything after it is hard. Mm-hmm. But my God, they're so great on stage. So I just think, and it's who am I to say this person belongs on stage or this person doesn't? I think for me, the cost just felt like too much. I just there was always a little part of me that was like, ah, I don't want to be up here. So even yeah. now, um, you know, one-on-one, I'm great. Love mm-hmm. chatting with you, et cetera. I don't want to be on stage. I just right. don't. I think it's, yeah, it's a profoundly strange thing, right? Isn't it to be on stage? But then for some people, it is just like, what is that? Well, what and, is that? and even more to the point for some people, they only can be on stage. And then the opposite is true that when they are Mm. without script and trying to be in dialogue with someone, that's really hard for them. Sort of when they're, when they're themselves in a social situation, right? Like I think we all, yeah. I mean, we're all so different in that way. Can I just ask you uh, what that first play was about? Yeah. So I, interesting looking back at what its themes were but so when I was a kid and growing up in the LA area um the heiress Patricia Hearst was kidnapped and I quite frankly thought that uh well I knew that she had there was a sliding glass door involved and we had a sliding glass door and so I started to I, I guess I was like I don't know uh six or something, seven, I would go and look, you know, at nighttime, we were living in the suburb of LA. And I just was convinced that I was next because also, I'm not sure what came first, but at some point, a friend's mom was looked at me and said, well, you look like a little patty. So she and I thought, this seed. yeah. And I just thought, that I'm next. I also knew I was middle class because at the same time, a couple of years prior to that, or somewhere thereabouts, you know, you had these, you had these things, you had the Manson family. And I, I bet it's the same mom who like, we all looked at a picture of them and she was like, they're all middle-class kids. And I felt like, Oh, okay, wait. So I'm got a target on me. I'm going to, there, someone's going to get me. And, um, I, wasn't afraid of the Manson family getting me, but I was afraid of the SLA. And so I just had that obsession 
And I, I had written this like 20 minute piece about it. And then people said, oh, you really should turn that into a something. And I had no idea really what it was to write a play. I'd just been an actor at that point. Um, and a friend from college, Greg Gunter, who was like the first dramaturg I ever knew, um, had been in New York. He had partly been involved with rent and all these things. So he was sort of somebody from our college who kind of came here quite early after college. And he helped me out. He was like, oh, here's what you do. And so I, and I took these workshops and classes and, um, and I pretended that I wasn't, it was interesting. I pretended it wouldn't be me performing it. Uh huh. Right. So, but what it finally kind of hovered around was my being Lebanese and the fact that Lebanese, Symbianese are close and that, the, and that really my desire to be kidnapped had to do with the idea that I myself was like an heiress. When in fact, of course, I was not an heiress. So it had to do with sort of pluck me out of my middle class life. Right. Like make me special. Yeah. Even if it means being kidnapped. Even if it. And being kidnapped. Exactly. Um, So that fantasy of wanting to be um, other, right? Like where you are felt too ordinary and not special, which of course all of those experiences have led like to this gorgeous work that you keep putting out in the world and these plays that resonate so deeply about displacement and, and what that means collectively and personally to people and how unbelievably relevant always as the Middle East is always in crisis. But now for Americans, it's, it's so front and center, but you grew up. So describe a little bit like, your parents because your father's legacy feels to me in this play anyway more front and center than perhaps your mom's although that may not be true um yeah so talk, no for talk sure a little, a little about that yeah I mean they were just this funny mix um my dad you know was this like super fairly serious um man from a somewhat uh, like a six six kids in his family so he's kind of the one who left um lebanon okay yeah so he was born in southern lebanon and and then went to um american university of beirut which is like a sort of fancy school there and then um 1958 was a war and it's really weird i didn't ask him all these particulars until I was doing a retreat with the cast and I asked the cast um, to, if they were able to ask their parents about when they left, because really almost everyone in the cast is someone who was forced out of, you know, where they were from or whose parents were forced out or who left. And we had these stories and I was, I'd never asked it. So we're talking. He said, oh, it was 58. Uh, I think it was the Civil War. I said, no, 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 dad, dad, dad. Civil War was 1975. It was another war. So there was a little war in 58. And my father was um, from the Christian Lebanese side of things. And I guess his dad said, well, it's going to be bad for Christians in Lebanon uh, coming up. And my dad left, had an uncle here somewhere and got into this school in Oregon. And I think it was just the luck of the draw. Like that was the one that still had not started at that point. It was like this random thing. 
And then he met my mom, who was at the University of Washington, I think on a blind date, and they eloped. They went to uh, Idaho or something. My mom was 19. He was like 24. And the characters in the first act of this play are about the same age. Um, I don't think I was channeling them fully, but for instance, there's a scene in the first play where they're, you know, alone in a hotel room. And, and I, I, I really try to sort of suss out like what, what is that like? It's 1967 and, you know, you're not like necessarily gathering information on sexual practice and conduct and so on. And then suddenly you're with your husband and you've never been alone with him. Mm-hmm. You just got married. So, um, so those, those two people, my parents stayed married for 28 years. And it, I think this is probably true of a lot of people who come from these sort of mixed cultural homes um, because I never felt fully American. You know, I, I the notion of being so-called Brown wasn't talked about then. Um, people did mistake my dad for Mexican because we were in Southern California. Right, um, right. But, but then when the war happened in 75 and our cousins came to live with us and we would, you know, go to the beach or something, I was embarrassed at like, oh God, they're all like got their cologne and their like shirts buttoned down to, you know, they probably looked a little bit like, um, John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever when I look back. Like they all had that right. same look. Right. Um, but they weren't Italian. And Italian was something by then that people kind of understood. You know, they're all speaking Arabic. And I was like, I'm so I just don't want to, I just want to be, I just want to be like a, I, I didn't think of the word white, but I just want to be American. Right. And so whatever, that was my childhood. And then you know, along those same lines, it's like politics never were far from our house. Like, when you, you just, oh, our cousins now. So at a certain point in the war, Israel invades southern Lebanon. So our cousins are like not home. They are brought to this like containment center on the southern border. We can't reach them. Then nobody has any fucking cell phones. It's 1982. Right. So it's like, I always find it fascinating when, when people say things like, um, the, the way we talk about politics, right? And it's like, oh, I just, I, I don't want to go there. And you're like, but really, it's it may not be politics to you until it comes to your front door. Exactly. And when it comes to your front door, it's politics. So right. it could be the politics of the street cleaning on your block. It could be the politics of your city council person. And I think I, I invite people to just like not feel so bifurcated about that. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but absolutely. Um, when 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 you were growing up, first of all, did your father speak Arabic to you at home? Not to me. He didn't, and he was definitely the generation of. There's no point in learning it. So I re- I wish he You're had. Never going to need it. It's not relevant to your life. Yeah, and yeah. also, frankly, a fair amount of like, just I don't want to say self hatred, but just like. I'm here. I love the West. This is the language. Um, but of course I heard it every day. And um, because we had cousins and uncles around all the time. So, um, but my mother never learned it. And I guess mm-hmm. that was just her choice talking about my mother, uh, Judy, almost, there was like a 
probably an eight year period where someone was always staying with us, you know? So my sister would come sleep in my room and, um, and of course I kind of liked it. It was sort of comforting. I think, um, that construct of the sort of white American, you know, nuclear family is rather lonely, um, frankly. Uh, so I loved that, but it spoke of what was happening, right? Just the speaking of displacement, you know, the, the things that were faced that Lebanese people faced during that 15 year period were more about, should I stay or should I go not being forced out, but really the decisions of like, how much is too much and will it get better? And of course that's something we're seeing happening now in Ukraine, you know, um, every moment of every day. Yeah. yeah. And some people decide to stay. Some people stick it out. Um, well, let's, let's, I mean, that's such a perfect segue to your present play. I mean, I think you have another play unseen happening as we speak somewhere also in, not in Denver. Where is that happening? So that's at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Oregon. Okay. Um, yeah. The, the thematically really um, investing your, your characters and, and your audience's time in in this, your family history, and then the sort of more global, you know, not the personal, but the, the the public face of all of this. When did it go from Patty Hearst and some fantasy about being, you know, the the richest heiress in America and all the attention that came with that and the terror, um, to really kind of looking at your family's history and its relevancy in the world, how it affects you, how it affects others, like many plays now really have this Middle Eastern theme at the center. I mean, there are all these just beautifully um, human, flawed people, right? Yeah. Like that's what yeah. I loved so much of the play. There was no preaching. There was no, this is right and this is wrong. It's like, this is what it is. And these are people behaving in extraordinary circumstances, all of them. Yeah, yeah. So when did thematically... Um, that becomes so much the focal point of what you wanted to learn about yourself and in your writing. I mean, I think that I, I just had this notion and I will say about the Patty Hearst thing that the other side of it, there were these fantasies that I, I was kidnapped and that I, um, then one of them was that I really became quite good at shooting. And I was like the best little member of the SLA and you know, I, I, <laughs> so I think even being Lebanese played a, a role in that because it was like, I'm going to be, I'm going to fit in. I'm going to fit in on either side of this story here. Where do I fit in? And I think that, um, you know, that the, I, I just had this sort of, uh, yearning to write something about where my father is from. Mm -hmm. And so the thing to know about that is, so he's, he was born in this small village, Southern Lebanon, uh, the big city that's near where he's from is called Sidon. And so down there, there are two camps, two Palestinian camps, one of which is quite large and the other is smaller. And they have been there since 1948. And when I, I'd always known about Palestinians, because they are the narrative of Palestine is, is part of the Lebanese existence. It's part of the civil war. Um, I, it would be wrong to say my family was even political. 
They were just mm-hmm. talking about what was happening in, right. in their country. But I definitely was not necessarily told or I was not around people who were like pro-Palestine. So I started to investigate sort of like that the area of, of where my father grew up. And I was like, wait, so what is this place that's been there since 1948 out of which you cannot go? And, and in which, you know, it, within Lebanon, you, there's all these jobs you cannot have, right? So all these barriers. And then there's this, what is it to have a camp that's, you know, 50, 60 years old and the permanent impermanence of that, right? right? So I just started to investigate that and somewhere in that, and I don't come from it, I don't come from stuff from a purely like intellectual, whatever, I'm just curious. And so somewhere in there became England, uh, you know, Palestine was part of the British mandate, right? And England had kind of a great deal to do with that part of the world. Um, And so Wordsworth and the scholar and someone who kind of looked to England, who now in crude terms, at some point got fucked over by England, if you want to put it that way, is sitting in this camp. And that was the first play that I wrote. And so in terms of my own family history, you know, my father left because he wanted to leave. He was able to go back to Lebanon. It was painful. It broke his heart. Um, He didn't go back during the Civil War, but technically he could have. So it is quite different than someone who's been forced out of Palestine the resonances of being displaced and the idea that, and this has been said much more eloquently by many other people, that you will never be of the place that you left once you leave. And you will also never be of the place that you're going to. Right. And that just sits with me. And I think about it all the time. And we live in a city where on any given day, we probably passed 100 people. Absolutely, with that story. By the way, just for listeners, when you describe uh, someone who's interested in Wordsworth and London, that's the lead character um, in the play that that we're, we're sort of here to to celebrate among learning more about you, um, is, is someone who is, who I guess in your play, he studied in Cairo, Um, Yes. And and Wordsworth is his, you know, was his thesis project, basically. And he's invited to give a talk in London. Um, And while he's there, I'm going to butcher your beautiful play. No, no, no. But just to let people know who haven't been able to see it yet. um, He goes to London and while he's there with his new wife, as you described, loosely based on your parents' elopement. um, Yeah. uh, Although in this case, she's not Norwegian. She's also from Lebanon. Um, Palestine. Palestine. I'm so sorry. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I'm conflating your dad and your character. No, of course, of course. The same person. Yeah. Um, there, there's a moment where, you know, there's trouble back home and she wants to go back home and he's yes. really enjoying this moment of being among other academics who seem to be really impressed with him. And he's slightly impressed with himself in this moment as he yep. should be knowing where he came from. And then it becomes this amazing play that's that's sort of like the musical If Then, which is you see different scenarios. What if they stay? What if mm-hmm. and she just goes home and he stays? And then there's what if they both went home? What if they both stayed? It's it's really fascinating because we all think about 
the what ifs in our lives. What if we went right instead of left? And so this play that Mona wrote just gorgeously um, allows us the fantasy of each of these three scenarios. And then what's expected when you are in this case, Palestinian in London, they, they have this, they sort of fetishize him, right? Like there's this idea of who he should be and what his politics should be. And so wherever he goes, he's sort of disappointing the status quo because he's not performing, you know, in the way that they're so excited to have this, you know, exotic professor in their midst. And then he's not sort of becoming who they want him to be too. So it's like, yeah, you're kind of, it's like you're fucked wherever you go, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> so and, and, and it's, you know, it's like that is true. And then there's something I hope with the humor and the humanity of it that, that right? Because you're not wrong. And if I heard that about a play, I'd be like, ah, oh boy, oh boy. But, but there is something I think about the family aspect to it and the fact that there is this hopefully catharsis, right. That we receive. Um, I've had people come up to me who've said, this is my father and this is my grandparents. And I'm, it's making me think about things I haven't even consciously thought about. And I think there's, you know, I, I don't necessarily set out to write a play. I am not writing the play to make sure every white person in the audience gets it. I'm also not making sure that every Arab in the audience, like it, you, I don't You'll write plays necessarily for, right. I don't, I don't write them for one community, but what, what makes me feel good is that I'm having, I feel like people who are not of this culture are finding resonance and the people who are like, Oh God, my parents did that. They were stuck. I just met a woman the other day. It was like, we ended up in Cairo because, you know, and sorry, there's a siren. That's okay. We're in New York. There you go. We're in New York. Early on in your play, what is so clear is that, yes, obviously it takes place. This is a Palestinian person. These are the rules of the life he grew up with. And this is what he wants to escape. And this is what he longs for. And it is so universal. I mean, I think... I I need to be clear about that. As specific as this man's story is, the universal uh, feelings that come up, you know, I looked at my row of people, we were all just from very different worlds and everyone was just moved in the same places and hysterical laughing in the same places because what you see is family is family. You know, you talk to people who grow up with less than other people and they'll say I had no idea we had less this is right. this was just how we grew up so when you have people in in these camps who are who are bickering and laughing and having all the family stuff that goes on they're just doing it in a tent right mm-hmm. right but they're they're laughing and fighting the way any family would under any kind of you know roof what floored me is that in the midst of so much psychic trauma and real world political drama, the amount of humor that you've infused in all of these situations and all your characters get different moments of being friggin' hilarious um, is why the place is so successful, successful. And also you worked on it for 10 years. 
like no thank you and, and just to speak to the humor piece yeah the, the thing the thing about the humor to me is also like um uh, in, in one way or another, I think during the Civil War in particular, I, I was around that. I was around that. That, that is coping me- mechanism. And there's this great uh, Palestinian poet who's not alive anymore, Murid Barghouti, who talks about how in the same breath, right, in our faces, he's speaking of Palestinians, it can be tragedy and comedy all in one moment. And I think that that felt true to me, right? and that it's like the, the people in a foxhole who have a cigarette and talk about things that have nothing to do with what they're, they're experiencing. Yes. And I think that like, I've been thinking about this because I, as I've told you before we started recording, you know, New York is home to me and I, and I, and I, and I love theater. And sometimes I do feel like I am an elitist snob. I admit I am. And I want to go see plays that are, uh, next to me are going to be people I would want to be at a dinner party with. And I think that's kind of a trap that we can get into here. It's like, you know, it, it may not all be people that you want to hang out with or have a dinner party with, but if, if we can sit together and have a human experience with the incredible humans on stage, then I think um, at least for me anyway, it it feels like more a part of my mandate than maybe at other times. Mm -hmm. I think in some weird way, this was the right time for this to happen, this play. And um, I know we talked about Mark Wing Davy a little bit. I think Mark, his ability to dig into language. um, Mark is an Englishman. He was at Cambridge in 67. So all the sort of esoteric discussion of like literary criticism, which I geek out on, and I had to trim, trim, trim down. I was like, you can't make a play about close reading. But it, <laughs> like Mark goes to town with stuff like yeah. that. But then he brings it all down to, in ways I've never hardly seen anyone do, because you were saying that your your husband was in a play of, that he directed, yeah. that it's like, here's the text. Here's what is here. He's such a great reader of text. And I think um, I felt like I was in such good hands. and. His associate, Sarah Blush, who has been part of the play since we did it in, in D.C., he he and Sarah worked so well together. There were times Mark had to go direct something at NYU and Sarah would, would step in. And I just want to give her a shout out because she's incredibly brilliant and had her own way of working with the actors. And that's what really great directors do. They they each have their kind of way of of, of you know. I would love to just sit down with you at some point and talk to you about all the different directors you've worked with. I I just want to ask you a little bit about process. I mean, you have had to write on deadline for TV show world. Um, Are you still doing New Amsterdam or? I am. We're doing our fifth season now. It'll be our fifth and final season. And it's a really, um, as you probably know, it's, it's shot here. So it's a gift to have all New York actors um, and it's a really lovely writer's room. And I actually, there's no asterisk there. It's because there are some not lovely writer's rooms out there yeah. in the world. <laughs> um, but it's, 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 a, it's quite a lovely room. It's all been on Zoom uh, in the time I've been involved. I was last season in this one. So okay. every time we all thought we were going to get together, a new variant would show up. And now we're kind of like, well, it kind it of works. works. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so I got to stay in New York. 
Got it. Because the yeah. writer's room generally had been in LA, even though it yeah. shoots here. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so I imagine the process, maybe I'm wrong. Is the process of writing an episodic television show for you and the process of writing a play, obviously you are handed characters to write for when you come on to a television show versus your brain creating the characters that you want to speak for. Um, are there differences in how you do the actual writing though? Yes. Okay. So I think that um, I, now, you know, what's really interesting is that I haven't, the play I have going up this summer, Beginning Days of True Jubilation, is a play I wrote for my theater company. And we did it on Zoom and uh, in 2020, improbably, we had 18 people all over the world, all not all over the world, all over the States. Um, that's the last thing I've written. That was a play. Mm -hmm. um, so what is process? I'm kind of asking myself that now right. because I think in some ways, I wouldn't say I've had writer's block about writing plays, but I think in some ways I had to get this trilogy up before I could really clear the decks and go, what am I going to write next? So process has been a different thing for me at different times, but I think I, I don't map out where it's going. I don't mm -hmm. necessarily know where it's going to go. Um, or I have one or two ideas about the way it might end. Um, I don't do outlines for plays. So it's it's a much messier process. When is, uh, when is right now, because uh, we are coming to the end of this episode. Yes. When is the Vagrant Trilogy meant to play till at the Public Theater in New York so, City? So, yeah, May 15th. Okay. Uh, is our closing. We were extended a week, which is nice. Um, but yeah, May 15th is closing. And I think there are four shows every weekend. I don't know if they're doing five. Um, the tickets are on the website. People will find it. Before People will find it. Go, is there a little known fact about you that you can share? Yeah. Does it pertain to theater or not? No, anything. It could, so, it could pertain to astronomy. Astronomy. <laughs> Let me think. Well, everything. I'm so like, I've excavated so many things that are, you know, like I was going to say, oh, I was in the Girl Scouts, but I wrote a play about that years ago. So yeah, let me think. That. You didn't know that. Yeah, I was in the Girl Scouts and I got every badge except one. And I was very, very serious about it. Um, also slash was, you know, a budding lesbian, but none, didn't do anything. I've heard of other people who had some adventures as Girl Scouts. I did not. They had more fun. Yeah. There were some <laughs> things going on, shenanigans. I had none, but um, definitely liked the company of girls. And and growing up in California, you know, we, we went like real camping. You know, I talked to a friend who had like, she was in a city and she's like, Oh, we never went camping. And I was like, oh my God, we went hiking. I learned how to read a compass. Um, I learned how to use a sterno stove. I knew how to look for rattlesnakes and what to do if I saw one, even though I I I haven't a clue now as to what I would do. Well, I have a really important question, and maybe this is really the best way to end this episode. What is your favorite go-to Girl Scout cookie? Well, if you had not, to pick one. Not Thin Mints, but they used to be called Scott Teas, and now they're called 
Do you know those? Oh my God, yeah. you know Scott Tees. Yeah. They're, they're called trefoils or I don't know. They're like the shortbread ones. Yeah. So um, now I'm on the mailing list of like three people who have kids in them. So I get these like websites with links and like videos. And I mean, so-and-so sold like 2000 boxes. No, this is I, not your mother's Girl Scout troop. No, this it is, is not. a whole new. Yes. All right, Mona, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you for your beautiful art, but also thank you for the time you spent with us today. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. It was a joy talking to you. If you are a human being who loves musicals, who loves comedy, and who loves deeply moving pieces of theater, I urge you to go see The Bedwetter, the newest musical at the Atlantic Theatre Company, playing from April 30th until July 3rd, 2022. It is an adaptation of the best-selling memoir by Sarah Silverman. In this case, the musical is written by Sarah and Joshua Harmon, who wrote the show Bad Jews, and it features a sensational final score by our beloved, beloved Adam Schlesinger, who passed away during the COVID pandemic. The director is the great Annie Kaufman. The choreography, which is brilliant, is by Byron Easley. The girl at the center of this play, the actress playing young Sarah at age 10, is so brilliant. And it is such a unique show. It is deeply moving, deeply hilarious. If you are a person who's ever met another person, if you're a person who... Uh, believes in second chances. If you want to laugh harder than you've laughed in a very long time and be moved deeply, this ensemble is actually incredible. I have to single out Darren Goldstein uh, for just being amazeballs in this. Anyway, The Bedwetter at the Atlantic Theater. Go to atlantictheater.org. They spell theater, T-H-E-A-T-E-R, atlantictheater.org for tickets, more information about the show. If I were you, I would get a ticket immediately because it's selling out really quickly uh, because, well, because it's Sarah Silverman and she's just one of a kind and maybe one of the funniest humans on the planet. One more thing. So many of you have asked, how do you donate to the podcast? Well, it could not be easier. Just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com slash donations. Instructions are clearly laid out, and I'm so grateful to you in advance for any donation you choose to make. But regardless, I have loved, loved, loved making the previous 200 and something episodes for you. I can't wait to make 200 more I wish you a beautiful day. Stay healthy, be safe. Until next time. Clouds can make the wind blow. Bugs can make the grass grow. So, there you go. These are little known facts that now you know. This episode of Little Known Facts was edited by Nicholas Klar. We record in New York City. The Little Known Facts theme song was written and recorded and sung by Georgia Famusa with backup vocals by Caleb Famusa. Thank you.